chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel, trumpet, slash first woe, blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke rose out of it like smoke from the giant furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft, and then out of the smoke came locusts onto the earth. They were given the power like that of a scorpions of the earth, and they were told not to damage the grass or the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. So this specifically says that the believers are not harmed. The locusts were not given permission to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. Their torture was like that of a scorpion when it stings a person, and those day people will seek death but will not be able to find it. They will long to die, but death will not but death will flee from them. That's horrific. The abyss. What is the abyss? All throughout the Bible, the abyss is the underworld. It describes the grave where the dead go. It describes the underworld where the, the wicked are punished for their sins. And it describes the place where a certain group of angels, fallen angels, were imprisoned for their sins. The word abyss is also used as the word Tartarus in Greek mythology, where the Titans, all the pagan gods were jacked up evil, but the Titans made all the other gods look like Mickey Mouse. And so the Titans were imprisoned there. And so this goes back to the the place that you really see this is in chapter 6 of Genesis. It says the sons of God, which always means angels in the Bible, came down and married the women of men, and they intermarried with each other, and God was so horrified by this that he brought a flood to wipe out humanity as a result of it. And, and, and then when we get to Second Peter chapter 2 and Jude verse 6, he describes the punishment on the angels. And so we're told in Jude, sorry, we're told in Second Peter chapter 2 that long ago in the time of Noah, a group of demons were thrown into the abyss and chained up and locked there for sins that they committed during the time of Noah, ready to be released in the final days as a judgment on the earth. Then Jude chapter, verse 6, there are no chapters in Jude, Jude 6 says, there were a group of angels that were thrown into the dungeons or the abyss for committing, for violating their boundaries, crossing boundaries they were not allowed to cross. And they committed sins that were the same as the sexual morality of the, 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 the um, Song of Gomorrah. So he literally says that this, and the same way that this people, Song of Gomorrah, pursued unnatural sexual desires, so these angels also sinned in the same way which means they pursued unnatural sexual desires. Men with men in Song Gomorrah, angels with humans in Genesis 6. And they're locked up in a dungeon with chains, locked up in the key, the abyss. And this is where the abyss shows up. And we're told that on the day of judgment or in the last days, and the last days can be anything post-Jesus, the Bible clearly uses it that way, they're going to be unleashed on earth as a judgment. And now we have the same idea of the abyss, and this angel comes down. Now, this isn't a fallen angel, because this angel is given the key to unlock the abyss, and it obeys the commands of God, which means it's obedient to God, and it's going to unlock the abyss. 
And these demons that have been trapped in this darkness for God knows how long are going to be unleashed on the earth and they're going to block out the sun like the plague of the flies and the gnats of Egypt when they were so thick and swarming that they blocked out the sun. And so the idea is that these demons are being released. Now, we know that they've got to be demons because locusts never harm humans. They don't look like this when we get to the description. And we're told that they had a king. They had a king. Proverbs 30, verse 27, says locusts have no king. When I was younger, I always thought that would be a really cool band name. Locusts have no king. Okay? Um, I think it's still a good old band name. Don't steal it. You owe me <laughs> dividends if you do. Um, I know you guys are about ready to form a band. So, uh, yeah. so, but God says locusts have no king. They go where the wind carries them and they just devour the plants. And here we're told they're going to have a king when we keep reading. And the king over them is a demonic being. And the fact that an angelic supernatural being unlocks a supernatural angelic prison and unleashes a not any kind of thing that God has ever created. Uh, remember, when the beasts came out of the sea, they were mutated and they were unnatural, which is always unclean in the Bible. And here we're going to see mutated unnatural locusts doing things that locusts don't do, harming humans. And then we're going to be told that they have a king over them. And they come from the same place that Jude and Peter told us the demons are. So most people agree that these are something demonic. Some people say, oh, these are Apache helicopters. The long hair is like the helicopter blades. And the, the yeah, I, yeah. These are demons that are being unleashed on the earth. And what they're doing is they're tormenting the humans. I don't think we're going to be able to see them. This is a spiritual realm. So it could be they've already been unleashed. It could be that they're going to yet be unleashed. But either way, I don't think we're going to see, the, the world is going to see demons rising up out of the ground all of a sudden. Um, if that was true, we've already been seeing stuff like that. Will there be certain people who have the ability to see it? Yeah, there have always been people who have the ability to see the spiritual realm. But I don't think, all, I don't think CNN is going to be like, oh my gosh, like, right? I don't think it's going to be anything like that. I think this is what's happening in the spiritual realm. They're not allowed to damage the grass or earth. That's not locust-like. And so they begin to sting people and torment them. Now, whenever you see this word torment in the Bible, it's a psychological torment because of sin. I don't think you should see this as little demons like stinging people and then they have these festering like sores that are so bad that they want to kill themselves. Pretty much a lot of scholars agree that if you see the word torment over and over and over again throughout the Bible, it's psychological torment. We can see this with um, Sam, Saul. In chapter 17, we're told that the Spirit of God was taken away from Saul and a spirit that did evil or harm upon him. It does not say in the Hebrew, an evil spirit was placed upon him. It says a spirit that did harm. The word raw in Hebrew can mean harm or evil, but most of the time it's used of harm when connected to people and actions. And so it meant that a spirit did harm to him. And the harm that we see is always some kind of psychological torment. Uh, by, some people try to classify bipolar, not enough information in the Bible to really do that. Um, but it's a psychological torment. And we see this over and over again. When God uses the word torment, he means psychological. 
And we know that there's lots of psychological torment. We have mental illnesses. We, we, even the psychological torment of not following God and rebelling and, and falling in your sin, the guilt, the shame, the torment from that. Addictions, go to Alcohol Anonymous, um, other things anonymous like that for different addictions. There's lots of psychological torment from that. It could be that this is just when we give ourselves over to addictions and other gods and we follow our own path, we're naturally going to give ourselves over to demons in some kind of a way. And we're going to follow their path. I'm not saying that you're going to be possessed, but you're allowing the demonic world to have its way with you in some kind of way. And it's going to lead to torment. Mental illness is an all-time high in America right now. Um, in other countries too, but I can speak confidently about America. Um, the suicide rate is climbing drastically. Anxiety, depression from all kinds of things. Government shutdown, cell phones, social media, um, academic failure because the government shut down, masking, all these things. We're in a horrible place right now. And it's not looking up. And, and government is cutting funding for therapy for people and, and funding all that kind of stuff left and right. And, and so this could be just the natural result of our sin or it could be God allowing these demons to intentionally sick the people, so to speak, and attack them. I, like I said, I tend to lean more towards this is what we invite in our lives when we turn away from God. Because most of what I've seen is a loving God who takes his hands off to let you reap the consequences so that you turn back to him. And less of a God who says, get them and destroy them. Um, it just is a lot more malice oriented. And I'm not saying there aren't times where God hasn't done that. But just on a, I just, it doesn't seem to be the norm of how God functions. Why were they given five months? Five months was often, five is often used in the Bible of a short period of time that will not last forever. I don't think we should interpret this literally five. Does it mean that they will literally try to commit suicide? Like they'll stab knives into their body and shoot themselves with guns and they literally will not die? Like the movie Death Becomes Her? I don't think so. I think that's just really weird. Now we're getting into zombies and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And um, I think most likely the idea is that no matter how much people try to seek death to escape their problems or find satisfaction, it will elude them. Um, many people commit, try to make suicide attempts multiple times before they actually successfully kill themselves because most people don't really want to die. And so they will try, but it will be too hard to elude them or God will protect them or suspend them somehow so that they continue to reap the consequences of their actions. I don't know. I wouldn't take this as literal gunshots and throwing yourself off a ruse and yet somehow death completely eludes you in any kind of a way. I think the idea is that death will not be the answer. Death will not solve anybody's problems. It will not be a fix. It won't make any, and your suicide just adds psychological torment to the people that you left behind. And so there, there's, no, there, there's no solution here. Verse 7. Now he begins to describe them. Verse 7. Now the locusts looked like horses equipped for battle, and on their heads were some, something like crowns similar to gold, and their faces looked like men's faces. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like iron, and breastplates in the sound of... Um, iron breastplates and the sound of their wings was like the noise of many horse drawn chariots charging into battle and they have tails and stingers like scorpions and their ability to injure people for five months is in their tails 
they have as king over the them the angel of the abyss whose name in hebrew is abaddon and in greek is apollyon now that's a nightmare that's a nightmare and notice how many times he said like 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 you know what that means that's a simile and that means i have no idea what i am seeing but i'm doing the best to try to make a connection to something in creation so you have an idea but this is crazy I, I can only imagine, like, can you, okay, have you ever thought about this? After all these visions were done and over with, what were the dreams of John like after that? The nightmares and stuff. Like, he's not just reading this. This isn't even a movie he's watching. Like, he is 3D virtual reality in the midst of this. This is, I mean, maybe the grace of God just came over him and said, sleep. Okay, peace, my child. I don't know, but C.S. Lewis talked about when he wrote screw tape letters, like he spent a long time recuperating from that. Like just the idea of diving into that. And and he was a believer doing it for a, a really good godly purpose to help us understand things. So I don't know. I just I can't help but think of that sometimes like, oh my gosh, like I can't imagine what his dreams would be like afterwards. Um, and then, of course, these are already dream horror like, and then your dreams will mess it up even more and create even more things. Like, I don't know. We digress. But um, here's my guess. Here's my guess. If you've ever seen somebody who's been possessed or demonized or given themselves over to truly occultic, demonic practices over a period of time, or you've seen people who've lived in zero light, like solitary confinement for a long time, it changes them physically. There's a sense of wildness and deceivalment that comes over them. There was a guy in our church who was a false prophet who was really our old, my old church that I grew up in. And he was a false prophet who was spewing a lot of unbiblical false things, putting himself equal to Moses, nobody has come like Moses except for him and Jesus. And we as a church had to go one-on-one -on -one to him and then with a group of people. And then eventually we had to stand before the church and give all the evidence of things that he wrote in his book, things that he had told people in the church. And we finally agreed as a church to excommunicate him out of the church um, because he was misleading a lot of people. And he was a very well-trimmed, very well-put-together very eloquent, properly spoken person. And and as you watched him over the, the three or four years, he's, his hair got disheveled, it got wild, his eyes got crazy looking, his clothing got disheveled, he wasn't taking And you see as, as his crazy prophecies and, and, and false teacher got more and more, Jim Jones, if you watch the video, Jim Jones recorded himself more than any other false teacher. And you can watch a progression of wildness and disheavalment and craziness and that came over them. People come out of zero light. That affects them. And I almost wonder if you're a demon who's been trapped in this abyss for a long time, what is that going to do to you? What is that going to do to you? I, I think the idea here is that there's just absolute disheavalment here. When you see hair unkept, like women's hair down and wild, that is used symbolically throughout the Bible to represent a, a giving over to sin, 
and not taking care of yourself anymore. Iron teeth are used of a malice where you just don't care who you hurt and how you affect people. There's a sense of this is demonicness at its most demonic. And I think that's the idea that's just being communicated here. I don't think any of this is truly literal. I think it's just communicate an absolute scary, ferocious, destructive, crazy disheavalment that is going to be unleashed. It's going to be unleashed. The other possibility, too, is like I said, these demons coming out of the abyss, the locusts, those could also be armies. And Joel chapter 2, I know I'm backtracking a little bit, but it's something I forgot to mention. In Joel chapter 2 and 3, God talks about uh, an army of locusts being unleashed on Israel for their sins. And it describes them like a military invading army. And it describes them destroying and wiping people out like a military army. And it really could be that these are really truly demonic beings in the spiritual realm doing things, or these could be the demonic beings that are helping navigate humans in war. And that that behind this army coming down and wiping you out, that feels like locusts as they devour everything in your villages, your children and your your wives and your sons and, and your governments and your crops and everything as they pillage. There's a true demonic force behind them in the spiritual realm. The Hebrew word here, Abaddon, means destroyer. And Apollyon is the equivalent of that destruction. But Apollyon is actually, Abaddon in the First Testament is usually a word used of death. Whenever the Bible personifies death, in the First Testament it uses the word Abaddon. And then Apollyon is a play on words from Apollo the God of the sun and secret teachings and mysteries who was a very revered God in Rome and the God of the Roman emperor and the Roman emperor unleashed hell more than anybody in the Roman empire because he was just the most powerful dictator there was. And so they think the idea here is that this is just hell unleashed, death and hell unleashed on the earth. Uh, from a spiritual demonic false gods kind of a way, from a dying and going to death, the grave kind of way. It's just, and, and like I said, like this doesn't have to be in the world. World War One, World War Two. I mean, go watch movies like Band of Brothers, The Pacific, done by Tom Hanks, Fury with um, um, Brad Pitt, and uh, Hamburger Hill with Clint Eastwood. Like, that's, these wars are stupid. They are hell. They are just like, even just watching these movies like messes me up and freaks me out. And I can't imagine living through it. Um, there's, this, there's this place in Pacific where he talks about how like, they try to explain to him what being like having kids is like or whatever, what and how great it's like, but you can never imagine it. You can never know until you were there. And he's using that to say, I thought this was going to be awesome serving my country until I got here. And people told me it wasn't going to be quite like that. But now that I'm here, holy crap. And there's this idea here that we do a pretty good job of creating this stuff. If we as humans in the image of God can do a pretty good job creating hell on earth. I mean, World War I dug in trenches 
with flamethrowers and machine guns and tanks and Agent Orange and or, or um, yeah, or mustard gas, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of all those years, not one side gained one inch. And all the people that died. Now imagine aligning yourself with demonic realm. And some of this stuff was aligned. Everybody, this is well documented. The Third Reich was in league with occultic practices. Many of the Jewish things that happened to the Jews were occultic practices. We do a pretty good job of aligning ourselves with demons and, and, and unleashing hell on earth. And I think that's just what's being described here. Either it is happening now or it's going to be future. But this is a partnership. This is a partnership. And this is what it looks like. I don't think this is Satan. Some people have said this is the name of Satan. He's ruling over them. I don't think this is Satan because when Satan appears, it's obvious. Like I said, when the Antichrist appears in 13, it's obvious. When the dragon Satan appears in 12, it's obvious. When Jesus appears in 19, it's obvious. When God gets these major players, it's not metaphorical. I mean, it's, uh, I mean it is metaphorical. He's not the dragon. But it's, it's very obvious. He said, this is Satan. This is the Antichrist. This is Jesus. It becomes very obvious. The first woe was past, but two woes are still to come. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a, sing, a single voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. This would be the altar of sacrifice. Saying to the sixth angel, the one holding the trumpet, set free the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour, day, month, and year were set free to kill a third of humanity. The number of the soldiers on the horseback was 200 million. I heard the number. This is the sixth trumpet and the second woe. And it's scary. And we're told that there are four demons bound up at the Euphrates River. We have no idea where this comes from. Many people say these could just be angels, holy angels, but the, the, this can't be. First, when they're said to be set free, the word set free, unbind, chained up, and bound is used four different times. Why would God? God has never used it of holy angels. He doesn't bind up holy angels. He doesn't imprison holy angels. This is, these are definitely demonic. This is on the same level of Jude 6 or 7 where the other ones are thrown in the abyss. Second, the release unleashes considerable destruction. Considerable destruction. These are demons who are bound at the Euphrates. We have no historical context of this. I can point to you Jude 6 or 7, 2 Peter chapter 2, and Genesis 6 for the abyss. But we have nowhere to connect this to. And the, these demons seem to be like, like if you thought the abyss demons coming out was bad, it's like these are four, they seem to be portrayed as like generals in some kind of a way. Now, are these literal four demons that are chained up the Euphrates and that they're going to be unleashed? Or could it be more metaphorical of every single time scary armies came to Israel, they always came from the north in the Euphrates? Assyria, Babylon, the Parthians. Oh, the things that Israel throughout its history has feared the most, has brought the most nightmares, kill people in your village, carry you off and bind you up and ruin your lives forever, have always come from the Euphrates River. 
And just like the beasts coming up out of the sea in Daniel 7 are not literal, they're metaphorical of nations and empires and armies, these could be that too. And the same way, these are four major armies that are coming down from the Euphrates to attack Israel. But they're being described in a spiritual, demonic kind of a way. Because anybody, anybody who is willing to march their armies on civilians and wipe them out indiscriminately and dismember them and kill them for the sake of power has aligned themselves with demonic forces, whether they realize it or not. They don't have to be involved in the occult or witchcraft or do a seance. They have done it through their own choices. And when you watch things that have happened in Africa or Cambodia or World War I or World War II, there was something demonic happening. I'm not saying every soldier was possessed or in league with demons or anything. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying the nations that said, yes, we approve of this, go and massacre and genocide people and just pillage people for the sake of power, that's demonic. That's demonic. And so I think what we're seeing is definitely a two sides of the coin here, that these are locusts and demons in the spiritual realm, locust demons, and four kind of demons but they're behind the real physical humans that are just massively coming. And if anything, history and psychology has told us that humans do things in mass that they would never thought that they would have done as an individual. Okay, the four angels. This might be the demonic version of the four angels that hold back the winds. It could be that there's not literally four demons, but the idea is that these are just like God has his angels that hold back and guide the providence of God or execute the providence of God is a better way of phrasing it. There's this metaphorical, antithetical reality of not literally four, but just demonic forces that govern the providence of Satan, for lack of a better phrase. Why have they been kept and chained for that year, month, hour? It could be not that God has like a calendar <laughs> where he's like crossing things off, so to speak, but that this is happening because God is allowing it to happen. That he knew when this day was going to come and he hasn't stopped it because he's allowing this as his own judgment. Does that kind of make sense? I don't think God is like literally saying, I have December 3rd, 2000, whatever, 3000, whatever, 4000, whatever on my calendar. I think he's just saying, I know when this is going to happen. And when it happens, it's not catching me off guard. It's not like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? Or, oh my gosh, look, the humans did it again. It's more of like, I know this is coming, and I'm going to allow for it, and I'm going to allow for it at the right time. Like, this, this could be happening at any moment, but God keeps holding it back because we're not ready. And I, I take that from the idea, remember in Genesis 15, when God comes to Abraham, he says you are going to go, your people are going to go into a foreign land and be enslaved there for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet right. Meaning, I have given you this land of Canaan, but as a just God, I cannot give it to you now because that will either mean killing the Canaanites or kicking them out, and that's not just. They don't deserve it yet. But because I know everything, I know that in 400 years, they will be ready. And I will remove my hand from you as a nation and you will go in and you will exterminate them 
as a judgment from God. And then you can take the land justly. And I think that might be the idea here is the, the demonic realm or human nature or, or the desire for power is always in us and demons. And we're like waters at a dam. And I don't mean we specifically, although there might be some people. <laughs> no. But I mean empires and nations. Every time a nation gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it's like the dam waters are just pushing harder and harder against the wall. And God's hand is staying it and saying, no, this country does not deserve this full onslaught flood yet. But God knows the day, the hour, the month, and the year when we're going to become so bad that he's going to allow the dam of our government to break loose on us and just plumb us or the dam of China on them or the dam of Venezuela to break on them or whatever. And I'm not saying every bad thing that happens and every bad thing a government does, God is making it happen. I think it's God is obviously allowing it to happen. And he even makes that clear. And so I, I would take that more of the, he's holding it back until he can justly say, you deserve it now. And he knows when that time is coming. He knows when that time is coming. The number of the soldiers on horseback are 200 million. I don't think that's literal. I just think that's like that's a whole lot. I heard their number. Now this is what the horse of the riders looked like in my vision. The rider had breastplates that were fiery red, dark blue, and sulfurous. Yellow in color. These are all sulfur. These are colors of fire. And sulfur is usually associated with demonic behavior. The heads of the horses looked like lion's heads and fire smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. A third of humanity was killed by these three plagues that is by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur that came out of their mouths. And for the power of the horses resides in their mouth and their tails because their tails are like snakes having heads that inflict injuries. The rest of humanity has not been killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands so that they did not stop worshiping demons and idols and made of gold and silver and bronze stone wood idols that they cannot see or hear or walk about. Furthermore, they did not repent of their murders or their magic spells or their sexual morality or their stealing. Now, notice that the horses are described in a very scary kind of way, very demonic language, but notice the massive amount of destruction comes from the horses. Don't know what that means. But the massive amount of destruction comes from the horses. Now, this is what I think is the main point. I think no matter what we view we take, no matter how literal, how metaphorical you take this, whether it's now or past or future or whatever, I'm putting a big giant question mark on a lot of this stuff. I'm not brave enough to really put my stake down on a lot of things in this chapter, two chapters. But I will say this. The rest of humanity had not been killed by the plagues, did not repent. Humanity has or is or will become so evil that even when all hell unleashes on them, they will not repent. That's saying there are no atheists in foxholes. That's not actually true. There's a lot of people in foxholes who shake their fist at God even more and hate him even more. The Holocaust did not produce believers. It made the vast majority of Jews atheists and made the vast majority of Jews atheists. And the main point here is, in the time of Genesis 6 of the flood, 
Everyone was thinking only evil all the time, and they made alliances with demonic beings, and they worshipped the demons. And God gave them 120 years to repent, and not one person repented in 120 years. And what God is showing you is they deserve the punishment. He gave them every single chance. God gave the Canaanites 400 years on top of the 100 years he already gave them. And he sent Melchizedek and Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and other people, and they did not repent. When it came to the time of Joshua, Rahab and her family were the only people in that particular city. Psalm Gomorrah was sent two angels, and not even the wife repented. Just Lot, who was willing to offer his daughters up, and the two daughters end up sleeping with their father so they can get pregnant. They, not, not much righteousness left in you there. And what God is saying is that humanity can get to the point in their sin and oppression and power and all that kind of stuff that no matter what happens to them, God makes this point when you get to the prophets. He says, I, I blessed you. We just read this in Amos as a family. I blessed you. And I, I saved you. And I poured open the floodgates of heaven, and you turned away from me and served idols. And then I came in and punished you with foreign oppression and took things from you and brought famine. And you still turned to idols and turned away from me. It doesn't matter whether I bless you or punish you. You don't repent. They're not repenting. That's the main point. God is just. Humanity is so evil that they're not repenting. And therefore, God is just in what he's doing. This is even more scary here. And not only that, they did not turn away from their idols. And he says specifically worshiping demons. Deuteronomy 33 tells us that when they were sacrificing to the gods, they were sacrificing to demons. When they were worshiping the idols, they were worshiping demons. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that Paul says when you are going into the temple and you're worshiping the idols and you're eating meals with them, you are worshiping demons and eating meals with the demons. And so what he says here is, is despite all this, they continue to worship these demons. They've literally made pacts with these demons. And these demons have turned on them and are killing them. And they still are following them and worshiping them and devoting them. It's like batter wife syndrome. But even worse, because it's on a demonic level. How many times has our government lied to us over and over and over again? And yet so many people still believe everything they say. And I don't mean that in offense to you if, that's you, but go through our history. Go through our history. Our government lies to us all the time. I'm not saying that they never do anything good. I think we're jacked up in a lot of ways, but I still think that this is the best country to raise my girls in as this point. But we, we just keep giving ourselves over. How many times? I mean, there are people who sacrificed their kids for work. And their kids are falling apart and their families are falling apart and they still keep going to their work as their idol. And I get it. I get it. Addictions are hard to defeat. Addictions can be destroying you and you know it and yet you're addicted and you keep going into it. And that's what God is saying. No matter how bad it gets, they still prefer to follow their hearts and do it. We had a guy in our Bible study a long time ago. We went through the entire Bible together as a Bible study. He was a faithful attender. And we started disbanding as a Bible study just because we were kind of had different directions in life. Um, most of my wife and I were pregnant. We were <laughs> other things. And he looked at us that last night 
And it broke my heart. He literally said, it is so obvious after being in this Bible study with you for the last several years that your God is more trustworthy, more faithful, more loving and forgiving than anything that I've ever encountered. Yet I like living the way that I want to live. And as much as that broke my heart because I cared for him, at least he was honest. He didn't make excuses. There's just not enough evidence. God's not loving enough. He was honest. That's what it really comes down to. But I like living my life. Even when I reap horrid consequences, I still want to do what I want to do. Giving up controls. And this is the point. Furthermore, they did not repent of their sexual moralities, their idolatry, their de- the, everything. This is humanity when they start becoming the worm. Now, does this mean that they're, they're past the point of no return? No. I don't know. But it does mean that their hearts are hard. N.T. Wright says this, For many Jews, the early Christian thinkers, the sequence of thought goes like this, Granted the deep-rooted and destructive wickedness which emerged from the depth, not only of the individual human heart, but even more so from the system of um, domination and oppression that humans together create. What is God to do? As we have seen before, if he were simply to wipe out his creation, so as, as this abyss in our heart opens up, and we do the things that we did in World War I and World War II and, and genocide and torture and all this kind of stuff. And indiv- nations, as well as individuals, when they break into people's houses. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer, all these people, right? As the abyss opens up and these, this locust demonic thing pours out. And as nations themselves unleash demonic atrocities on earth. What is God to do? As we have seen before, he, is, he allows people's space to repent, to come to their senses, to worship him as a source of life rather than demons and idols, which are the source of death. Then that patient mercy always risks the possibility that people will use the breathing space to make matters worse. The result is that human systems and individuals that continue to rebel will simply make themselves all the more ripe for the eventual judgment, which will at least in part consist of evil bringing about its own downfall, as we shall see in Revelation 16, 5 through 6. This, this is the conundrum. God's perfect will is that all come to Christ and all would be redeemed and that there would be a, lack of a better phrase, a utopian garden of Eden on earth, right? But it is also his greatest desire is to give us free will, free choice, to be able to choose to come to him lovingly because we love him. So as people choose to go against God, one would say just get rid of him right now so they can't affect anybody else in a negative way. But a loving God has to give them space to repent, time to repent. If he truly loves them and desires that none shall perish, then he has to give them time to see him and to repent. But in giving them time, he takes the risk that they will just become more evil and they will do more destructive behavior as the world cries out for justice, but at the same time God desires for them to repent and come to know him. But at the same time, as they keep going deeper and deeper into this and further and further away from repentance, they heap even more judgment on themselves and the judgment becomes harsher and harsher and harsher. I imagine trying to run this universe. Right? I wouldn't wish the presidency on my worst enemy. 
Like, can you imagine the horrific decisions you have to make sometimes just like this with limited information? And no matter what you do, somebody's going to get hurt. And no matter what you're going to do, one half of the nation's going to hate you for you and the polls are going to go down. And now the universe, this is the point that got me to Job. Do you think you can run the universe better, Job? Fine, take the throne and let's see how your philosophy and your system make things happen. This is way more complicated than you could ever imagine. It's so easy to say here and say, why God, why God, why God? And that's a very valid question. And you should ask that because God wants to know the cry of your heart as a good father who loves you. But at the same time, what? This is complicated. This is complicated. Once again, we're nine chapters in and there's still no kind of years, dates, chronology, sequential events. We have no idea where in history we are. Not once has John ever made the effort to tell us whether we're in the past, the present, or the future, or given us any kind of numbers. There are no numbers yet. There's five months, but where is the five months happening? Is it happening in the middle of the seven years, before the seven years, after the seven years? It's disembodied. If you say, when did you go on vacation? For how long? I say five months. When? 1970? 1990? 2000? That's what I mean. Like, yes, we have one number. Okay, I'll, I'll retract that. We have one number, but that number is completely disembodied. It has no frame of reference has no frame of reference. We don't know where we are anywhere in history. Past, present, future. We don't know where we are in the seven-year tribulation. That's what I mean. Like, all the number, the one number we do have is completely disembodied. How, when did that five months begin? When does it end? It's very hard to work a system out. Now, we will get to that in chapter 12, and we'll talk about that. Okay, but right now we are nine chapters in and we have no numbers that, that root us in any kind of where we are in history.